carried out with us this morning, Lord, as we look to you, who has all the power and the glory, Lord, as we look to you as the one to lead us away from temptation, to deliver us from the powers of the evil one. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we continue our series in Advent, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Joshua, where we look at Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word from Joshua chapter 5, starting at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? This is one of those fascinating passages that we find in the Bible, speaking of things that we don't ordinarily see spoken of. It's one of those moments where the curtain is pulled back that shows us there is more going on in this world, in this universe, than we can see. It is another reason yet to live by faith and not strictly by sight. We can't see what's happening behind the scenes, but that doesn't mean that nothing is happening behind the scenes. And we are encouraged not to live as though nothing is happening behind the scenes. To live in such a way would be a big mistake, for it's simply not the case. So what do we learn from this fascinating passage? Well, I think we learn something very simple. We learn that God fights for you, and His commander is Christ. God fights for you, and His commander is Christ. I want to go through and just make some observations about this text as we try to see what exactly does that mean for us. And the first one has to do with the interesting way that This question that Joshua asks gets answered when he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And to get there and fully understand that, I want to explore and bring you up to speed of kind of where we are in the process. What's going on in this leading up to this particular passage? Well, first let's remember who Joshua is. Joshua was Moses' assistant during their days of wandering in the wilderness. He had been appointed recently leader over the people of Israel, as Moses was not permitted to enter the promised land, and the end of their 40 years of wandering had come to an end. And now they're on the borders of the promised land, and Moses has handed the reins off to Joshua. Here they are. They're camping on the east side of the Jordan River in a place called Shittim. 
Joshua has, spent, has sent a couple of spies into the land, specifically perhaps to scope out any weaknesses they might find in the city of Jericho, which lies before them, hidden behind these fortified high, what seems to be impervious walls. And they've returned from the, with news of Jericho, discovering inside that people are afraid of them. They come back to, to let them know that they've heard of God drying up the Red Sea. They've heard of their victories over the great kings Sihon and Og on the east side of the river that occurred during their days of wandering in the wilderness. And now they have just recently crossed over the Jordan by another great miracle of God where He parted the Jordan River and allowed them to pass through on dry ground. And now they sit in a place called Gilgal. It's in the valley of Jericho. It's right, right there in front of the city of Jericho where they can look up and see the fortified walls uh, looming up at them. So they sit there, presumably, we can imagine, at least Joshua is drawing up the battle plans for how do we attack this city as it stands in between us and inheriting the land that God has promised to give him. But Joshua, of course, he's He's got a lot going on as well at this point. I just want to bring you up to speed on what's happened to him. He's gone from Moses' assistant to leader over this mass of people. He was commissioned with strong words from God Himself about conquering the people of Canaan and the absolute vital importance of knowing and keeping God's commands. He has led the people across the Jordan which God told him would be a show of strength, not only that would strike fear into the Canaanites who would hear of it or see of it, but it was also meant to elevate Joshua in the eyes of the people of Israel, that they might receive him and see him as they saw and received Moses. In other words, he has undergone recently a lot of change. He has received a lot of attention God has instructed Joshua to circumcise the males that were born in the time of their wandering, for they hadn't yet been circumcised, and which was an important event, showing them to be recipients of the promise to Abraham to bring them into the land. That's what circumcision was a sign of, that God would indeed fulfill His promise to Abraham. Then had come this first celebration of the Passover in or on this side of the Jordan River. And as soon as they celebrate the Passover, the manna ceases. The bread from heaven that had fed them for 40 years in the, in the wilderness has stopped coming down, and they, from this point on, are to eat from the produce of this promised land. So, just imagine that. I mean, there's a lot of changes that have gone on. There's, they've been accustomed, probably have got used to the habit of the wandering they did, sitting in a place for a long time, gathered and camped around this tabernacle that God had instructed them to build as indicative of His presence in their midst, and now they finally come with 40 years of anticipation to the borders of this land that God had promised their forefathers. And Moses has, or excuse me, Joshua has been given this very forceful commission, be strong and courageous. I urge you, be strong and courageous. I am going to take you into the land, and you're going to conquer all the people there, but you must be very, very careful to obey everything that I have told you through Moses. So, this forceful stuff has happened. He's been elevated in the eyes of all the people, having 
performed his own miracle, just as Moses did in the crossing of the Red Sea. They've crossed the Jordan where the water's piled up on one end. And he's been given this daunting task of leading the charge as the general of God's people to conquer these cities in the promised land. I mean, you have to wonder what's going on in the mind of Joshua at this point with all these changes that have happened to him so fast. On one, on, on, on one hand, you might think that with all the attention that he's received, with his high elevation, with this strong commission, that he's wondering about his own importance to some measure or degree. And at the same time, you can't help but thinking he's feeling the weight of the assignment that God has given to him. Who am I of such importance that God has elevated me How should I look at myself, and what on the world am I supposed to think about this daunting task that lies before me? I can only imagine that he is filled with some measure of perhaps pride on the one hand and complete and utter anxiety on the other. And that's the place where we find him wandering off, perhaps to get a closer look at the city of Jericho. By the way, he has been the one leading the soldiers in battle during their previous battles in the wilderness, so he's, he's used to doing reconnaissance, he's used to battle strategy, so perhaps he's there. And the text is ambiguous. If you'll read some of the text, it doesn't say he was standing by the city of Jordan, he was, said he was in the city of Jordan. So it's a little bit ambiguous of where exactly he is. Nonetheless, he's close, thinking of how he's going to breach these walls that seem virtually imperfect impervious, and he sees this man holding a drawn sword. Now, he's all alone. He's perhaps in or by the city of Jericho. What do you think is going through his mind? You know, who is this guy? So, he cautiously asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or for our enemies? And I'm not exactly sure he gets the answer he's looking for, for the first thing he hears is, no. Translators translate it neither, but the actual word is no, no. Now, it is an interesting word, and you can imagine what it's filling him with, and it's not the word even as we, the reader, would expect. I mean, we have been following the story of the people of Israel as they have wandered, as they've been, first of all, brought out of their slavery in Egypt by this powerful display of God in the midst of the Pharaoh who brought all these plagues upon him to break his will and let the people go, and then to wipe out his army as they pursued them through the Red Sea. God brought them to the mountain where His presence was made known in the, in the, in the fire and the smoke and the thunder that they hear. Moses goes up on the mountain, receives the Word of God, the Ten Commandments and the instructions to build a tabernacle so that they would know that God is in their midst. That's what the tabernacle represented as they wandered throughout their time in the wilderness. So at every step of the way, they've been given all of these things so that they would know one specific thing, they are God's people, and He is dwelling in their midst. Now, if He's done all this for the people of God, you would expect that when Joshua meets this man and finds out, after all, that he actually is the commander of the army of the Lord, that he would be receiving an answer that says, oh yes, I'm for you. Oh yes, I'm for you. So what are we to make of this? What exactly are we to make of this? 
We, perhaps we should say what's obvious first. He says he's the commander of the army of Yahweh. I know it says Lord in there, but if you look, it's often all uppercase, which means he's talking specifically about the God of Israel, the Yahweh, who had revealed himself to their forefathers, Abraham. And that's important because the land of Canaan worships all kinds of gods. And it's specific that he's not encountering any one of those commanders, of those gods. He's encountering the God who has been with the people of God, with the Israelites throughout their time. So that's who he's encountering. So what is, he, what is this all about? What are we supposed to learn from this? Well, I think that what we're supposed to learn, we are helped to understand by Joshua's reaction to what he sees happening. For his first reaction, the response that is elicited by this presence of this one who says, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. It's for Joshua to fall on his face, it says in verse 14, and worship and say, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So the first response that this unusual answer elicits is a prostrate position. He falls on his face. He falls on his face before this man, and he worships him. He worships him, which tells us, because this man receives the worship, in fact, invites him to worship, tells him that the place he is standing is holy ground, tells us who this person is, that this is, this commander of the army of the Lord is God Himself in the flesh, which we know to be a typological representation of Christ. Christ is the commander of the Lord and His army, of the Lord's army. So he's meeting Christ. And it moves him to worship. And it tells him a couple of important things. I think what it does really is give Joshua a sense of clarity with regard to his own calling. For he has been called to take this people of Israel, this people of God, into the promised land, which is a daunting task. But it is a task, I think, that we learn as a result of this, of this uh, confrontation. It is a task that falls not under his authority, but under the authority of God. Joshua is not the commander. The Lord is. It is not Joshua's battle. As much as it appears to be on the surface of things, it is ultimately the Lord's battle. And as much confirmation as Joshua had to this point, I think God is graciously driving home this point to show him that what is show him what is ordinarily happening behind the scenes that we just don't often see. The battle for God's kingdom, in other words, is an even more daunting task than Joshua thinks it is. As fearful as he may have been to look up at those walls and to think, who are we, this people wandering lost in the desert for 40 years, can somehow come and sack this city that is built for the purpose of repelling invaders, as daunting as that may seem, the appearance of this commander of the army of the Lord is essentially telling Joshua, it's a lot bigger than you think it is. This task, while you thought it was daunting, it's a lot more daunting. That's why I'm here. Because you're not only battling, 
flesh and blood in fortified walls. You are battling the forces of evil in the spiritual realm that are standing on the border of this promised land, determined to keep you out. That's what's happening. That's what the commander of the army of the Lord is exposing to Joshua. And I think in the same way, there is a sense in which when he's trying to figure out his place in all this and his level of importance, that it does bring him down just a notch. Yes, I have given you a very significant calling, but don't think it is yours to bear alone. Don't think too highly of yourself. While, yes, you've been given charge to to lead this people, ultimately you are leading them behind me. You are my servant, not their Savior. Don't forget that. Now, how does that remind us? What does that tell us, I think? I think it reminds us that as Christians, we are also following a Lord who is a a battle commander, that we are not civilians, that we are soldiers. And I think we forget that. I think we tend to think, well, Christ came to do some stuff for me so I could live my life however I want to live it and know that I'm okay. At least that's the way we tend to wake up in the morning and go about our day. We forget that our first obligation when we wake up in the day is to say, Commander, what are your orders? What are your orders? How am I to be involved in the work of the kingdom today? I think that's the first thing we're struck with. We act like civilians when we have been called to be soldiers. Well, the second thing I think it's very important for us to notice is that the Lord has an army. He has an army behind Him. How do we know we're called to be soldiers? Because the battle for the promised land in the time of Joshua was a type of an even greater battle that we ourselves face. The greater promised land is in the future when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth. The writer of Hebrews explains in chapter 11, as he's talking about Abraham, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. As I skip forward, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, a better country that is a heavenly one. So while the promised land physically in the Middle East was of great significance, it is also a type of a greater promised land that will be this new heavens and this new earth. And so as we look at what's happening under the time of Joshua and the conquest of this land of promise... It serves as a type for us to understand there is a battle going on that will eventually usher God's people into a new heavens and a new earth, and it looks a bit like this. It looks a bit like this. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a familiar passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. He's talking to the, people, to the church in Ephesus. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what is our role in this army? Well, this battle of Jericho provides us a great picture of this as we see the battle plan unfold. Presumably, this is the battle plan that the commander of the Lord's army gave to Joshua that meeting. So what was the battle plan for the the soldiers who were the people of Israel? Well, their calling, as they looked upon this daunting fortified walls, wasn't to march upon it, wasn't to set fires at the baseline, wasn't to put their breaching ladders up against it. It was simply to march around it and blow the trumpet. They were to do that once every day for six days. And on the seventh day, they were to walk around it seven times, blowing the trumpet. So what exactly was their role in this battle? Well, it was to blow the trumpet. How do we blow the trumpet today? I think one way we blow the trumpet is we are simply talking about the gospel. For the gospel is what? The gospel is the good news that the king has come and he has won the battle. The trumpets are marking the coming of the king. It is the heralding, it is the announcing that the king has come. The commander of the army of the Lord has come. That's what the trumpets are doing. Who are the trumpets for? I'm sure it frightened perhaps even more the people who were behind the walls. But I don't think that's who it was primarily aimed at. I think it was aimed at these spiritual forces that are behind the scenes trying to keep out God's people from their destination. I think what was happening in those six days, and again, it's not explicitly laid out like this, but I think what's happening is the spiritual realm is very active, and there is a battle raging above in the places where they can't see. Now, we know this this realm exists, of course, as we think about there are moments in the Bible when this hidden realm is revealed. For example, in the time of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, as he's been praying, looking for an answer, and finally he receives one from an angel sent by God, Gabriel, who says, as soon as you prayed, God sent an answer to you, but I was held up for three weeks because the the kings of Persia resisted me. And he's not talking about the, the physical people kings, he's talking about those forces of evil is going on and raging in the spiritual realm. And Daniel's prayer is actually giving us a clue to how do we fight against it with prayer and the blowing of the trumpet, the announcement of the gospel. 
Paul writes about it like this. What, is it, what does the blowing of the trumpet look like in our battle? He tells us a little bit. As he already talked about these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that we are giving notice to with the call, the trumpet call of the gospel. And I think it does two important things. I've kind of hinted at them already. One, it is announcing to these spiritual forces that Christ has come and His victory is certain. It is a trumpet call to the enemies of God allied against Him in the spiritual fortified walls. Christ's resurrection from the dead shows this victory. Two, it disarms the powers of the enemy that hold captive those under their influence. And this is where the explanation of the gospel is so powerful, to set free those who have been captivated by the enemy and his influence to tell them that they still sit as enemies of God. Paul writes about how he's doing this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning of verse 3, we read, he writes this, "'For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power.'" to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, these are the weapons of the gospel. That's how they set people free from the powers that hold them back as it explains that Christ has come and done the one thing they could never do for themselves which is to pay the debt they had before God. As we think about this battle on the spiritual aspect of Jesus Himself fighting as the commander of the army of the Lord, He did engage ultimately in battle with with this enemy, this ultimate enemy of death itself. And it struck hard, and He did not come away unscathed. In fact, it struck Him to the point where He died on the cross a picture of the serpent striking the heel of the seed of the woman. But as that serpent strikes Christ on the cross, that very strike becomes the means of His greatest victory. So that those who were still under the deep darkness, as was read earlier, can be brought into the light as they can see, how is it that I go from being under the sentence of death because I know I'm a sinner into the promise of light because you see now the work of your Savior. The last thing we really learn from this is that there is a day of judgment. With the utter destruction of Jericho, we see a foreshadowing of the day of judgment. For them, the writer had told us earlier, their sin was full. That's why it was coming. The day the walls fell down signified that their time was up. That day has not yet come upon the world, but it will. It will come. And when it does, we will all be called to account. The books will be open, as the writer of Revelation explains in chapter 20. He says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. As Jesus explains in the gospel in Luke chapter 12, he says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed 
or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Uh, these are some terrifying images. I mean, you know the darkness of your heart perhaps better than anyone around you, but you know who knows it even more than you do? Well, a couple of people. One, of course, the Lord and the adversary. The adversary who stands before God as your prosecutor. When these books are open, they are the accounting books that have kept record of your life. Have you broken the law? Well, it gets entered as a debt in the book. And as these books are opened, the debts are called. Every hidden thing that you think is still hidden is in those books. But thank God there is another book also opened, as he says, and it's called the book of life. And for those whose names are written in the book of life, their account has been moved from these books to this book. And this book has one big marking on it which says, debt is paid in full. Because the commander of the army of the Lord has won and he has conquered your prosecutor. What is your job now? It is to blow that trumpet, the trumpet of the gospel that tells those spiritual forces evil, your doom is certain and it loosens their grip on the people who have been held captive here that God has called. For that gospel trumpet call will open their eyes and allow the truth to sink in and move them from the books of judgment to the books of life. So when Jesus comes, when we're mindful of Jesus coming, we think of Him coming in this manger as a baby, and He did, of course but He was coming to be this commander of the army of the Lord so that when those trumpets are blown, the enemy is defeated and God's people move from the wilderness of wandering to the land of promise. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that You tell us as the commander of the army of the Lord that now You have come. Our job is simply to blow the trumpets that mark your victory over these forces of evil that would keep your people out of the promised land. Lord, would you help us this Christmas season to be mindful of your work in this spiritual battle, that we would be encouraged to know what has been secured for us, that we would be emboldened and reminded that we are your soldiers called to blow the trumpet to the rest of the world that you might loosen the chains that have been fixed around people in their doom and in their darkness, that they might too see the wonder of your light and experience the joy of your salvation, to know that their names can be removed from the accounting books to the book of life because Christ on the cross paid their debts in full. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.